A scripture lesson comes from the first chapter of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to signify to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the land. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance there in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, the things that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, or the messengers, the pastors, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to listen to it and help us to heed the prophecy, even as we read and think about it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. These are interesting times that we live in, COVID masking and scares are making their way back into our culture. Immigration woes 
are overwhelming the border in the cities of Chicago and New York and other places like that that are sanctuary cities. We have a Democrat criminal senator being exposed by a criminal Democrat Department of Justice. We have falling and rising markets. We have talk of election racketeering already, and it's not even 2024 yet. We have the United Auto Works strikes going on, etc. Because of those things, when you talk to your Christian friends at the grocery store or other places or on the phone, you hear talk of rapture and the last days and the coming of the Antichrist and the coming tribulation from your friends and acquaintances. People alluding to the book of Revelation being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. Now that kind of talk is appropriate this time of year, for it is spooky time. And everyone loves a clean, good horror story where Satan gets thrown into the abyss. But what book talks more about the coming of Jesus than Revelation, where the church asked the Lord to come, or Jesus states that he's coming at least eight times. It is a book about Jesus coming. But reading the book of Revelation can be tough. Most people think it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. And if you don't know what an enigma is, think burrito. It's like a burrito. It's all messed up. But the first sentence of this book says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus being revealed or is is Jesus being revealed or is uh, something or is Jesus revealing something? Well, yes. In chapter 1, Jesus comes to John in the worship service, and he himself is revealed. We have that picture in verses 12 to 16 I just read, where he has white wool and flashing eyes and a white robe on. And in chapters 19 to 22, at the end of the book, Jesus is revealing his bride, the church. And I've talked about that a little bit in the Theopolitan vision. The chapters in between 2 through 18 are always doing both. Jesus is revealed as the lover and as the protector, as the husband of his bride, as he brings an end to the old covenant with finality. But also, on the other hand, the church is being revealed as those who faithfully follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even to their destruction and to their, to their judgment, to their martyrdom, as those who will continue, and even as those who will continue into the future after the Old Covenant is disposed. Those martyrs, well, not the martyrs, but the saints in the book of Revelation who continue, they are left behind, and they're glad to be. You want to be left behind. The people in judgment are the ones who are taken. So the bottom line is this. The book of Revelation is meant to be understood by the reader. It is a revelation. And it is meant to be understood by the churches who received the book back then. It is meant to be also understood by you today as descendants of those churches in the faith. So it's not a mystery. It's not even fantasy literature, which is how I was raised. It was fantasy literature. 
It's not an enigma wrapped up in a burrito. Rather, it's a blessing for those who read it and heed it. That's what it says in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is there. You can keep these things. It is meant to be understood by the Christian who reads it and knows the Bible. <laughs> but therein lies the problem, right? How many of you growing up carried only New Testaments? You older people. Okay. Everybody below 100. Okay. Uh, Christians don't know their Bibles. So they don't understand the images employed in the book, the symbolisms related to the stories, the context of how Jesus uses old covenant history to declare and bring about its coming with his ending. Like take the number 666. What is that referring to? Well, because people don't know the Bible, they get it all wrong. They think it's talking about Nero, all kinds of things, bad things. So let me provide you this morning with some simple clues this morning and next Sunday, some interpretive keys to understand, to be able to understand and enjoy the book that come out of the book itself. All right. It's just like Ecclesiastes. Once you get the V word right, victory, you can understand the book, right? No, that's not the right V word. It's Vapor, that's right, vapor, vaporous, okay? Vaporous of vapors, says the preacher. Everything is vaporous. Okay, once you understand that, the book makes sense. Well, that's true here as well. If we pay attention and we listen to Jesus speaking. So the first key is this, believe the text. Believe the text. When it says in chapters 1 and chapters 22, the book ends of the book, it's like these two sides right here. The book ends. Believe the text when it says these things must soon take place. Or that the time is near. Or in some of your Bibles, that the time is at hand. Now, the time is at hand doesn't mean 2,000 years. That's what Jesus said um, when he was in the garden and he was talking to his men. He says, my time is at hand. And guess who shows up? Judas. It wasn't 2,000 years later. It means something is taking place soon. It's also a blessing one who receives the book and reads it and heeds it. Listen to those who believe that. Believe it when Jesus says, I am coming soon. And that doesn't mean, as I had one friend of mine tell me, well, soon means that when he comes, he'll come quickly. I don't think that's what it means when you say I'm coming soon. That when he comes, he'll come quickly. Whenever that is, in 3,000 years, he'll come fast. All right, chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which he gave uh, him to signify to his servants. And who are his servants? Well, these churches that are alive back then. The things that must soon take place. So he's writing to an audience. It's for them. All right, believe that. Uh, verse 3. Blessed one who reads... And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written for the time is not to take place for another 2,000 years. But I want all the Christians for the next 2,000 years to read this just so they're kind of up on it. So if it should happen in a day, it might take place. That's not what he's saying. He's writing to the seven churches. John to the seven churches of Asia. 
All right. Uh, now go chapter 22. Keep your finger there in chapter 1. Go to chapter 22. Here's the bookends. Verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophet, has sent his angel to show his servants what, what must soon take place. That's the same thing said back in chapter 1. Uh, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of the book. That's what he said back in chapter 1. Uh, verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Do you remember what the angel told Daniel to do with his book? Seal it up. Because it's not for another 400 years. Seal it up. But here he's saying, don't seal it up. The time is near. They need this book. Don't seal it up. Believe that. Verse 12 in chapter 22. Behold, I'm coming soon and bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Now, if you know the Bible, you know Matthew 24 or Luke 21. Those were days of vengeance. And Jesus was coming to hold recompense to all the wicked that have killed all his people from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. This makes complete sense. Verse 16a, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for St. Mark Reformed Church, which will be established in 2007. Well, I never saw that before. That's not what it says. For the seven churches in this book, in the text. Finally, verse 20, uh, he who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These two chapters are the bookends. They open and close with these near fulfillment claims at hand, coming soon. The time is near. And that means that everything in the middle is about Jesus coming soon. All right, that's the beginning and the end. Don't forget that. So believe that. Don't go another verse so that firms up in your mind like your kid's leftover oatmeal cereal. You know, when you go to clean up and you try to pull the spoon out of it, doesn't come out, right? It's like concrete. Okay? Let this firm up in your mind. It's just like Matthew 24, 34. All of what Jesus said up to this verse, 20, verse 34, did take place in that generation of apostles who asked Jesus about the stones of the temple being knocked down. You remember the apostles come out and said, look, Jesus, look at all those beautiful stones in the temple. And he goes, you see those? Not one will be left standing. What? On, on another. When? Tell us when this will be. And he tells them. And finally he gets to verse 34, Matthew 24. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. They're not going to die until all these things take place. Now you either believe they all took place or there are people walking around that are 2,000 years old. And I had a friend once tell me, yeah, I think there are some people walking around 2,000 years old. Because they didn't happen back then. I was like, what are you smoking? Okay. The first thing is believe the text. Secondly, John sees himself in the tribulation when he receives the revelation. Go to verse 9, chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation. In the Greek, there is a definite article. The tribulation. And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, he's in the tribulation. 
It's the same tribulation that Jesus spoke of when talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the land of Israel in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21, all parallel passages. John was there and he's listening at the feet of Jesus. I'll just read you a couple of those because I know you haven't read Matthew 24 lately. Uh, verse 9. Jesus is, they asked him, well, tell us when this is going to take place. And he goes, begins to answer them. And he goes, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. He's talking to the apostles. You will be delivered to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations. Okay, many false prophets arise. Da, 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 da. Okay, that's 24, 9. Verse 21. For there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That took place in the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light. So the tribulation is going to end, and there will be some things he's talking about in verse 29 after that, about his final coming, or his coming, not final. Same thing in Mark 13. So John is in the tribulation that he'd heard Jesus spoke of some 30-something years before. John is talking about the near events in his day, not days future to us. He sees himself in those days. Matter of fact, he's subject to that tribulation because he's on the island of Patmos being persecuted. So, there is no tribulation or uh, no tribulation of Revelation or Matthew in your future. John was in it. It's not for us. I'm not going to say you might not have problems, but it's not the tribulation of revelation. That's gone and done. That's the second key. Believe John when he says he was in the tribulation. Third key. When you see the word earth in the book, change it to the word land. In your mind when you read it or when you read it aloud. Chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now you read that and you think, how are all the tribes of the earth going to see Jesus coming? Oh, CNN. This couldn't have taken place till now because CNN can film it and put it on every pub TV and we'll all see Jesus coming back. Wrong. Okay? Uh, change it to land. Even those who pierced him in all the tribes of the land, because remember, where the tribes live in the Bible? In the land of Israel. We're not talking about tribe. We're not talking about Cherokees, okay? Or Apaches. We're not talking about or Uyghurs. We're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. Matter of fact, they get delineated in chapter 7 uh, nicely for us. Change it to land. Go to chapter 6. I'm just going to give you some examples of this. Uh, and out came another horse, bright and red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the land so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Uh, verse 8. Uh, and I looked, behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the land to kill with the sword and with the famine, with the pestilence by the wild beasts of the land. Now, if you read this earth in here, you're thinking... When did that take place? When did this rider go along with death in Hades and kill a fourth of the whole earth with famine? It hadn't happened yet, right? Chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. 
After this, I saw four angels stand at the four corners of the land, holding back the four winds of the land, that no wind might blow on land or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea, saying, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the service of our God in our foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. We're talking about the land of Israel. We're not talking about the whole earth. And then he delineates from 12,000, tribe of Judah, da, 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 da. All right? So change it to land. Now, why do this? Because the book is about the destruction of the land of Israel and Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. And Revelation is but an expansion of Matthew 24, more or less. All right? Uh, he's talking about the destruction of Judah, the old covenant, Jerusalem, not the whole earth, world, or cosmos. In chapter 11, the temple in Jerusalem in the land of Israel is measured, and that's the city where Jesus is crucified. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. This is John. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now go to verse 11. Uh, And and these two uh, witnesses come. You know about them. They preach, and they die, and they're killed. Verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. where their Lord was crucified. Now, where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem, right? Or outside the city. Jerusalem. Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, Sodom and Egypt are symbolic names for Jerusalem because it's become an evil place. But that's where the temple is. And John is being written to while the temple is still standing. Right? So we want to change it to land. That's concrete geography. Now, making this change helps you mentally two ways. First, when you read land, it de-universalizes the meaning of the book and brings it back to Israel and to Christ's judgment of Jerusalem as he promised in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. It takes it from you thinking about the whole world down to the land of Israel. It de-universalizes it. But also, reading his land defuturizes the book. Now, I made those words up. Defuturizes. Uh, tell me, when has one third of the earth been burned up? When has fire and hail mixed with blood been thrown upon the whole earth? Okay? And when has one third of the trees been burned up along with all the grass? Have you ever. You know, you're reading this and you're thinking, I don't ever remember in world history a third of all the trees being burned up or a whole land being covered with blood and hail. So this has got to be future. Never happened yet. That's what I was taught in church. Well, no, it's not talking about the world. It's talking about the destruction of the land of Israel and and Judah, that area. All right. Uh, never in world history. 
It was future to John, the immediate future, but it was about destruction of the land of Israel using symbolic pictures for the ending of the Old Covenant. And Jeff read from Joel 2, which is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Peter quotes that in Acts 2. It says it's about to take place. And it does within 30, 40 years. It's a warning. The whole book of Acts is nothing but a double witness to what Jesus had said. Gave them 40 years to repent. They didn't. In came the bulldozers called Romans, and they leveled the place. By the way, this is entirely permissible translationally. The same Greek word geis can be translated either as earth or land. It depends on the context. Remember the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land. Okay, that's Ephesians six three. That's the Hebrew word gate. I mean, uh, Greek word geis. In the Hebrew, it's the same. The same word can be translated earth or land, eretz, depending on the context. But the commandment was for the children of Israel as they entered the land of Israel for the conquest, not the earth. Don't obey your mom, but obey your mom and dad so you live long in the earth. No, to live long in the land that you're going into. Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20. The, the Exodus, all right? That's what they're talking about. Now, here's an exception. The only time you don't change it to land is when heaven and earth are being contrasted, all right? When the context is comparing the earth with the heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 3. Good example of this. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Remember, Joe's talked about this three-deckered universe, three-tiered universe, heaven, earth, and below the earth, the abyss. Okay, so there's a contrast between heaven and earth. So go ahead and translate earth there. But try to translate it land most places. That's the third key. Translate it the word earth in the book of Revelation. And by the way, this applies a lot of other places as well. Uh, prophetic passages try to change it to land. I don't know why the translators don't get that right, but you'd be surprised. Fourth key, understand that the terms Sodom and Egypt, and particularly Babylon the Great, or the Great City, refer to and apply to Jerusalem and to the people of Israel symbolically and not those places geographically. Peter in his letter writes at the end, greet everybody in Babylon, tell them hello. And you'll have commentators say, oh, there must have been Christians over in Babylon. Well, do you know, during the days of the early church, Babylon was not inhabited. It had been destroyed as prophesied uh, by the prophets back in the Old Testament. Uh, floodgates came in and, and leveled the city. It, there wasn't anybody there but a few shepherds. All right? It wasn't even a place to live. That's because they don't pay attention to the text. So remember that Babylon the Great, the great city, Sodom, Egypt, uh, does not reply or is not speaking of geographically because Israel and Judah of John's day in Jerusalem resemble those places because of the false worship and they so received destruction. So it's not, those are not geographical terms, they're theological terms for their wickedness or false worship. And I already read in chapter 11 
when John is measuring the temple, verse 8, uh, and their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Okay? And what is the great city that's used in that verse? Well, it's Babylon the Great in the rest of the book. If you turn to chapter 16, verse 19, we read, uh, the great city was split in, uh, let's see, great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Okay? It's just another name for Jerusalem. God is giving Jerusalem the drink of the cup of his wrath. It's the name of the prostitute who sits on the scarlet beast. Go down to chapter 17. Verse 3, and he carried me away. Uh, well, verse 1, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the land have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality and dwellers of the land have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the land's abominations. And I saw the woman, and notice what John says, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Right, this is Jerusalem, where they kill the martyrs. I mean, they did that during the book of Acts. Jesus said they'll do this. They'll kill you. They'll hate you. And they'll think they're doing God a favor by killing you. All right? That's what, isn't that what Saul thought? Hey, these guys, these followers of Jesus are bad news. Um, this is the city the saints are told to, to flee. Come out of her, my people, just as Jesus told the disciples to flee Jerusalem when they saw the various signs. Chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now go back to verse 2. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen follows Babylon the great. She's becoming a, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Where did Jesus find demons in the Gospels? In the land of Israel, in the synagogues, in the temple. Who cares about clean and unclean? It's the Israelites. It's the Jews. And they become very unclean. Babylon the Great. Uh, chapter, or same chapter 18, verse 24. And in her, this still talk about this city, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who've been slain on the land. That's not true of Rome or Babylon or Paris or New York. In her was found the blood of the prophets and the blood of all been slain on the land. In fact, these are the same words that John heard Jesus say back in Matthew 23, 37. Remember what Jesus says? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Okay? 
In her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints, and all had been slain on the land. All right, from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah, he mentions. So remember, when you see these names, Sodom, Egypt, Babylon, the great city, they're all names for Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified. That keeps you from thinking it's still future, you know, Babylon, someplace out there, the Middle East. When I was growing up, every time we had an oil embargo, a new book came out, how the war of all wars, the beast was coming, the tribulation, the Antichrist, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666, was alive, and we're all going to die, okay? Bogus. Okay, that's the fourth key. Fifth key, Revelation is about the tribulation times, and immediately after... Okay, afterwards. It's about the last three, three and a half years of that generation that Jesus mentions in Matthew 24 that runs from 30 to 70 A.D. So it's like 65, 66, 67 A.D. to 70 A.D. there. It picks up, Revelation picks up where Acts leaves off. All right? It begins when the disciples see the abomination of desolation standing where it shouldn't be. Where is the abomination of desolation standing, by the way? In the holy place. Where is the holy place? It's the first room of the temple. The holy of holies is in the back with the ark, right? The holy place is the front room. You walk in, table of showbread on the right, candelabra on the left, uh, incense altar in, the, in front of you, and then the veil, and then the holy of holies. So, when you see something standing in a holy place that shouldn't be there, Jesus says, get out of Dodge. All right? Uh, so, that's where it picks up. That's when they're told to leave and get out of town, because we already read that. Get out of her, uh, my people. Now, in Luke, when, when Matthew says, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it shouldn't be, get out of town, Luke puts it, because Luke is writing to Gentiles, he writes a little bit differently. Because Gentiles don't understand the holy place. They don't know what that is, right? Uh, but what does Luke say? At the same place in his narrative, parallel passage, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Well, a Greek dude knows what armies are. And when he sees these Romans surrounding Jerusalem, and he's a Christian... And there are Jewish, I mean, there are Gentile Christians in the church there. Whoa, this is what Jesus was talking about. Let's get out, okay? Uh, let's come near. Then let those in, this is Luke 21, let those in your Judea flee the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Uh, alas, for women who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath against this people. This people are the Jews because they've rejected Jesus. What did they say when Pilate wanted to cru- was asking, do I give you Jesus or Barabbas? You know, he's your king. No, he's not. We have no king but Caesar. Right? This is a wicked people. Uh, wrath against this people. That's what Daniel talks about, this people in Daniel 10:14 in chapter 12 of Daniel. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times 
of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I read that to you in Revelation 11. Two, don't measure the outside in the courtyard. It's been given to the Gentiles. So, Revelation is about these tribulation times uh, that will take place near the end of that 40-year period. My last key this morning is this, the sixth one. Remember that the whole book is a worship service, a worship service, a Lord's Day that gives you a front row seat on how worship is done in heaven. John tells you in chapter 1, verse 10, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What's the Lord's Day? Oh, it was the day he was born. Oh, no, no, it's the day he got baptized. No, it's the day he uh, healed the leper. We all know what the Lord's Day is. It's the day of resurrection, right? That's the Lord's Day. All right? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week in Acts 20, verse 7, other places. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, da-da-da-da. All right? John tells you the Spirit. By the way, that doesn't mean that John was by himself out in the woods, sitting on a rock, contemplating the future, as you see in these movies about John, and they read the book of Revelation. He looks like the Greek guy. You know, he's sitting there and his spirit comes on him. You ever seen those? You know what I'm talking about? He's probably in a worship service like you all, and the spirit comes on him and gives him this vision. Anyhow, he's in the spirit, worshiping Jesus, and that's the genesis of the book. In the service of the Lord's Day, Jesus reveals himself to John and then the seven churches, and ultimately to all the church. The service starts on earth, chapters 1 to 3. It then goes into heaven in chapter 4. Let me just read that to you. After this, I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the, the first verse, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven. So it goes from earth up into heaven. All right. So so it starts on earth. It goes into heaven, chapters 4 through 22, verse 6. And then it's back on earth, 22, verse 7 and following, where people can wash their robes and enter the city that is the church and eat from the tree of life for healing. The nations go in. They eat. Uh, they, they wash their robes in the river. They go into the city. They eat and they're healed. They're made well. Because John's vision, the revelation of Christ, is a Lord's Day event, the book follows the biblical worship pattern. First laid down in Leviticus 9 and number 6, verses 13 to 20. And that's where you have a call to worship. You have a call to confession, purification offering, an ascension offering, and then a meal offering or a peace offering, and then a benediction or a commissioning, a blessing. All right? Uh, so it's actually our worship service is based on the liturgy of the book of Revelation. How many of y'all knew that? Y'all know that because Pastor Joe taught that already, right? This old hat. It's based on the, the order of worship here. Chapter 1 is a call to worship. He's worshiping, and Jesus shows up, and he falls down, and he picks him up and says, Listen to me. Chapters 2 and 3. What's the message to the seven churches? Or to five of the seven churches? Starts with R. Ends with T. Repent. That's right. Five of the seven churches. Repent. That's your call to confession. 
chapters 4 through 18 is the period of consecration where you hear the word and the sermon. And that's where you have the seals that are described, that are, that are opened up and, and on the outside of the book. And then you have the trumpets blasting forth what's going to take place. And then you have the bowls poured out, which is the actual wrath, the actual events of the book. That's the consecration. Chapters 19 to 21, you have communion. You have the supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. And uh, the church is called to eat with Christ. And then they're eating from the leaves of the tree of life. And then in chapter 22, you have a commissioning with the blessing. Uh, to go out and take these things and bring the nations in. So it follows very nicely. The book itself is not unintelligible. And if you remember that outline, it'll help you think about how to apply the book. That it's not a mystery wrapped up in an enigma, wrapped up in a burrito. Okay, what are some of the implications and observations from these clues, these tips? Uh, well, first of all, Jesus kept his word. In Matthew 24, in Daniel 10 and 12, uh, what would happen to Daniel's people in the last days? And in the book of Revelation. He destroyed the unfaithful Old Covenant people. The unbelieving Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the rulers, while delivering his faithful people. I read you from Matthew 21. The tax gatherers and the prostitutes listened. Did the lawyers? Did the Pharisees listen? No. They got axed. Okay, they got judged. They were in the city killing each other when the Romans were surrounding instead of fleeing to uh, Pella. All right? Uh, Jesus keeps his word. He harvests his faithful people uh, and he keeps his word. Because of that, you can trust him now. He will always be faithful. Rely on him. Trust in him for all your needs. As you read this book, remember, he kept his word. Secondly, each worship service on earth is like this one that John is in. Your worship is Jesus coming to you and you by faith going up into heaven and we meet together. All right? By faith right now, you're in heaven. And remember also that every worship service is like the book of Revelation. Your worship is warfare and battle. We already sung that Jesus would destroy the wicked. We're going to sing some more of that. We've already prayed that. The call to worship was Jesus loves justice. And we're asking him to bring that justice. This is the most important thing you do all week. Because from this flows your mentality, your mindset, your obedience, your faithfulness. You husbands love your wives because Jesus loves his bride and feeds her. You wives submit to your husbands because that's what the church does. It, it, it goes down from there. Uh, your prayers cause symbolical but real earthquakes and kingdoms and principalities to fall before Jesus and his kingdom. Now people like to think that symbols aren't real. They don't mean anything. But that's not true, is it? Symbols are real. You drive down the highway and you see one of these on a big billboard, you know exactly what that means. And you know that there will be a nice burger and clean bathrooms and a playground for the kids because it's just all they do is put a big yellow M. That's all you need. Oh man, bathrooms, great. Okay, that's a real symbol and it has reality to it. Listen to Acts or Revelation eight verse three. Uh, well, uh, I'll start with verse one. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given them. And another angel came out and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the, gold, uh, on the golden altar before the throne. So our prayers are on that golden altar, which is the incense altar. Okay? Uh, uh, before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the land. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do earthquakes do things? You bet they do. They level whole nations. And we see that in the book of Revelation. God is leveling the wicked people of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem because they refuse to believe in Jesus. So your prayers are mighty. Thirdly, remember this. Gathered worship is invigorating as well as necessary. When you're gathered as the assembly, you see Jesus on the throne and that he is Lord of the world. Right? That's what Revelation chapter 5 is all about. Right? And you do that on the Lord's Day as his embodied temple with Jesus in the center of us. We are living stones full of the Holy Spirit worshiping Jesus. You have peace and rest because Jesus is on his throne and you're surrounded by his saints, your brothers and sisters. This book reminds you of that. That's why Lord's Day worship is special and unique. You don't get... If you go out in the woods on Sunday morning and sit under a tree, we're not there. The wine and the bread is not there. You're not hearing us sing. You're not thinking about the angels. You're part of heaven. You're just out there with the birds. And, you know, maybe with my luck, a bird would go to the bathroom on me. Okay? Because I'm not here when I should be. This is where you should be. The book reminds you that. You're gathered into and around God's throne in the spirit in a way that doesn't happen even when you have family worship at home. That's good, but it's not like this morning. It's not like the book of Revelation. Lastly, do you want to know Jesus better? Then read this book. Enjoy this book. Meditate and think upon this book. For in it, Jesus is revealed as your Savior, your brother, your ruler, your judge, the king of the universe that he is, and the king of the universe that you live in. He is compassionate, and he's fierce, and he's a fearless warrior. Okay, he's not just a charismatic sugar daddy. Oh, Jesus, I want a Cadillac. Or a Lexus. That's old-fashioned. Okay, I want a BMW. Okay, that's what I need, Jesus. That's not him. And through it all, you see him coming and moving the world in fulfillment of the Great Commission into the new heavens and the new earth that you now inhabit, that you are building by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the Theopolitan vision I've been teaching about at Sunday school. If you come to Sunday school, you can hear about that. Yes, I know that's shameless promotion, but uh, that's what we're talking about. That you live in the new heavens, new earth, and that you are growing and maturing as we worship and as we obey. Uh, now, thinking of the book of Revelation that way is better than any talk of the Antichrist. In fact, the Antichrist is never mentioned in the book of Revelation, by the way. In fact, in John's day, you wanted to be left behind in the new heavens and earth. You didn't want to be taken by Jesus in judgment. First, Matthew 13 says this, 
after the judgment, Matthew 13, one of his parables, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us, that you've given us the scriptures, that we might be faithful to you, that we might hear everything you have to teach us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be invigorated by hearing these things about Jesus, by knowing he's on his throne, that he is ruling the world, that every knee, as we read earlier in Philippians 2, will bow, will give thanks, and will praise. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be your people who uh, unabashedly and unembarrassedly proclaim Jesus uh, by our lips to our friends, our neighbors, as we speak with them, as we talk with them, as we fellowship with them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.